John Valiant is the award-winning author of best-selling nonfiction books like The Golden Spruce and The Tiger. He's written articles for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, National Geographic, and The Walrus. His latest book, Fire Weather, The Making of a Beast, is focused on how the conditions that human beings have created through the burning of fossil fuels and the acceleration of capitalist development are producing the sorts of enormous wildfires that we're seeing right now. So far this year, 2.7 million hectares have been burned across Canada, compared to the roughly 150,000 that we typically expect. That's an increase of 18 times over the norm. The fire season has never been this extensive or intense. There are wildfires from coast to coast, including in places that have never seen fires of this magnitude. This is a shocking trend, and it's not a trend that will reverse. Our forests sequester carbon, so when a wildfire occurs, it leads to an increase in carbon emissions. It shouldn't be lost in the fear that we're feeling as we view the images and videos of huge swaths of the country going up in flames that wildfire was the biggest source of carbon emissions in 2021 in Canada. Climate warming is driving an increase in the area burned, and Valiant's book is absolutely clear about the role of global warming and unsustainable development in fueling these fires. Firefighters are acknowledging that modern fire, especially at the border between forests and urban areas, is unlike anything they've ever seen. Fires we can't fight are emerging as normal under the conditions of a code red climate emergency. How can we respond to this reality without succumbing to panic? How can we let it radicalize us and mobilize us? I appreciate the pointed ways that fire weather grasps the roots of why we are mired in an incendiary sense of what's normal because of our attachment to fossil fuels. These shifts in the Earth's balance confront us, but this means we need to confront the drivers. And the drivers are, he says, unregulated free market capitalism a growth pattern that mimics the destructive force of these megafires. In Canada, that means confronting a fossil fuel industry that remains mired in business as usual, despite all of the signs that the industry has to strand its assets, it has to accept a relinquishing of control and a transition off of oil and gas. In Alberta, there is, Valiant says, a provincial identity, a structure and infrastructure, and a history that is built around petroleum. What do we do about that province's politics and its resistance to the necessary change? One thing Valiant does in Fireweather is talk about a trauma which people in Alberta, he says, do not want to talk about. The striking and scarring 2016 wildfires that consumed and destroyed Fort McMurray. Almost 100,000 people, he writes, were forced to flee in what remains the largest, most rapid single-day evacuation in the history of modern fire and yet it's not engaged with. There is a lack of connection, a causal connection made between the aftermath of these megafires and appropriate climate action. So because of that unwillingness to engage and the desire to just resume normal life, we don't make these causal connections clear. So we're headed, especially after this fire season, for a moment of collision, he says. We're colliding with climate impacts and we're seeing a collision politically between the obvious need for radical disruptive changes and an attachment to business as usual. We're facing fires that are differently powerful. So what we confront now is what John calls a process of integrating this new information. Figuring out a way forward that doesn't see this become commonplace 
that doesn't allow complacency to condemn us to combustion. This is a moment where 546 uh, fires in Alberta this year alone, right? An earlier and larger fire season than normal. Than ever. They burnt more acres uh, than, than they ever have by, at this point in the calendar. So. Wow, yeah. And BC is out of hand right now also. It, no, it's nugget. And uh, certainly for you guys, you know, I, my condolences, by the way. It's really terrible. And I even, I, you know, I've been studying, thinking about this for a long time, and I just never imagined Nova Scotia would go. I, I, could, I sort of thought that might happen 10 years hence. But, you know, to have it now is really, really shocking. The book, though, that you've written provides a lot of useful kind of, um, you know, context, I guess, but just a framework for thinking your way through um, the context. And, and so, you know, this, the book is Fire, Weather, the Making of a Beast. And you, you write um, in that book, this is not planet Earth as we found it. This is a new place, a fire planet we have made with an atmosphere more conducive to combustion than at any time in the past three million years. So in a way, we shouldn't be shocked, but the nature of the psychology of, you know, encountering these, these traumatic shocks is that it's always going to feel abstract until it's not. And so that's certainly one thing I wanted to ask you about. But, um, you know, just to kind of set it up, like the book spends a lot of time on the massive 2016 wildfire that torched Fort McMurray, you're also making the argument that uh, in uh, 2017, the year after the fire, was kind of a turning point globally with atmospheric CO2 hitting 405 parts per million, a 45% increase over pre-industrial levels. We're now in a new place, as you say, where, to again quote from the book, landscapes that have never known fire become increasingly susceptible to combustion due to radical increases in temperature, evaporation, and lightning strikes. I, it's a hard question to ask, but I guess I wanted to frame it in terms of homes being burned down, which is a thing you talk about. Like it's not reducible to the destruction of property. You say it's a kind of existential cruelty. And so I was hoping you could speak to this idea that we've crossed a key threshold and how you approach thinking about how these shared human experiences of that crossover will inform the response to this new reality going forward. Uh, thanks, Scott. Um, I, that, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, and mostly because that's what people told me about. And I could see there just how disoriented they were um, and their descriptions of, of coming back uh, to Fort McMurray, which was disinhabited for over a month. And there's no other North American city that has been evacuated like that, with the exception of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, you know, and that was a historic North American trauma. And now um, Fort McMurray has joined those ranks. And I think it's really, we don't realize um, how much our sense of place and belonging and meaning in the world is attached to the things that are in our world. But if all those things burn down, which they did in Fort McMurray, where are you? Mm. And then you eventually find your way back to your house and there's nothing there. Yeah. And so everything you did there, you know, the, the kids you raised, you know, the, the meals you made, 
the love you made, the stuff that was given to you, entrusted to you, it's all gone. Where are you and who are you? And it's a real question. Yeah. And thousands of people in Fort McMurray had to answer that question. I saw this tendency in Fort McMurray, oh, it's just stuff, you know, we'll rebuild, we're insured. All that is technically true, but it's still a real violation uh, to your psyche and to your sense of being and belonging. And I think also the shock of coming back to a place where you, that you've really, you know, home is, is really what we count on. And, and if that's gone, it's, it's really, uh, really compromising. And, and I think it's, you know, obviously it's worse to lose a person, but to lose your home is a death. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a death of memory. It's a death of, uh, of continuity, a death of stability and once you've been through that, once you've crossed that boundary, I think the world is forever different. You know, you'll never, you know, even if you rebuild your home, it will never be the same and you may never have the same kind of trust again. And that's what we're seeing seven years later in Fort McMurray is people mm-hmm. still basically have, you know, you could call them trust issues. You can call it PTSD, but there's, there is for many, the ground is not as solid under their feet anymore. And yeah, I mean, you say that um, before 2016, uh, it was a kind of more innocent time. This is how you kind of put it. And I wondered if you could maybe um, elaborate a little bit on what you were saying by kind of zooming out to the level of the city, uh, this complex, as you say, um, at a different point in the book, uh, network of intertwined systems like that's an interesting idea that there could be a more interest, a more innocent time for a city, but clearly there is a pre and post wildfire psychology that prevails. I think in relationship to risk and vulnerability, um, what power do you think that exposure to fire weather has in terms of maybe? I mean, in Alberta it's tricky, but in terms of climate action, you'd think there would be a direct uh, connection. And you'd think there would be this powerful awakening of what is, you know, to many clearly a not a climate caused, but a climate enhanced disaster. But in Alberta, people don't talk about it, especially in Fort McMurray. The role of the petroleum industry in causing and perpetuating our current circumstances um, is real, and you really see it front and center in Alberta. And there are plenty of people in Alberta who are, are very concerned about climate and are really eager to transition to renewable energy. But there's a whole structure and infrastructure, and not to mention a history, legacy, provincial identity that is built around petroleum. Mm-hmm. Why it's relevant yeah. is because it impacts how people respond to this dilemma. And so I've had some very intimate conversations with people who've been through this disaster and they've been, you know, really honest with me and really insightful Mm -hmm. and very, you know, in touch, if you will, with their own feelings and fears and sense of things. But there is no discussion of changing behavior. There's no discussion of, wow, this, you know, really feels different. Um, Maybe we should do something. 
Uh, it is business as usual. Mm -hmm. And so this loyalty, and I don't think that's purely Alberta. I bet you will see similar responses in Nova Scotia where people very legitimately and understandably just want their old life back. Mm. I just want what was taken from me to come back. And I want to live the way mm -hmm. that I used to live because it worked. That's really understandable. And it's more complicated when you're involved in an industry or really a civilization as we all are that is fossil fuel driven. Right. And, and the availability of fossil fuels is, you know, that, that thing that it's difficult to precisely name, but it's like, that is the thing that when we say, are, you know, getting back to normal, sort of what we mean is the domestication of fire in the form of this you know, endlessly transported millions of barrels a day, burned and transported uh, thing. Um, and, you know, so that that I think is worth thinking about. But like the way you approach it is to kind of lay bare the kind of uh, relationship that human beings have had to fire and now have to fire. And so in some ways you're trying to like, it's it feels to me, get inside the head of fire or like inhabit the elemental otherness of fire um, you're you're kind of trying to write towards that level of understanding, but it's not an understanding that I think importantly like reinforces our mastery of fire. Or you know, if it does reinforce that, it's also making clear that that feeling of mastery comes at a real cost. Like when you write that fire quote does not have consciousness, but it does have character, and that this character is that of a hunter with an unquenchable appetite, and then move into a discussion of how human beings are in many ways akin to fire in our appetites. You know, what are you sort of trying to get across in terms of that, you know, complicated feeling of mastery over fire? Well, here's an, an analogy. I mean, say you grew up with dogs, as many of us did, and say they were hunting dogs and you depended on the food that, that those dogs helped you uh, procure you know, to survive for your living or for even for your income. And, you know, one way to think about it is what if you developed an allergy to those dogs? Hmm. So when you were around that dog, even though you were totally dependent on it for your standard of living, you were sneezing and your eyes were watering and you were coughing all the time and you always felt lousy. And yet the dog was so integrated into your life and lifestyle that you almost couldn't see that that was the cause of it. Hmm. And then if someone, you went to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, uh, Scott, you've developed an allergy to this dog and your life is going to be miserable. And in fact, it's going to get worse if you keep this dog around. And yet you love this dog. You raised this dog. It helped you become who you are. That's really what it's like. Right. Fire has been this ancient companion for us and has done in fact many of the things for us that that a well-trained dog will do you know it, it it can help us it keeps us safe it keeps us warm it's a companion for us you know when you think about a fire in a fireplace or a campfire it's very comforting it's very animated it's not alive in the sense that we or the dog are alive but it's lively mm -hmm. and so i almost think we when we're talking about fire, we need to expand or maybe loosen our definition of what alive is because it's so 
similar to us and that it, it needs oxygen to live just as we do. It needs to be fed just as we do. It has, um, in a way, kind of hopes and ambition as we do. That's what we do. That's what oxygen kind of compels us and you could say condemns us to do is to live in this very reactive way. You know, we are oxidizing all the time. We are reacting all the time with oxygen. And that's what makes us move. That's what gives us our heat and temperature, our vitality. I mean, don't forget, we're burning all the time too. You know, you're 37 Celsius right now. And I really hope the room you're in is not 37 Celsius, but you are. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you're, a, you're, you're just a slower kind of combustion, but you're still in a way combusting just at a slower rate. Yeah. And I think that kinship is part of what the book is about is like trying to kind of make visible that kind of kinship. Like it's, it's, it's like, it's deep. It's a deep, almost ontological thing um, that has in some ways, it sounds like, you know, part of the narrative of the book is that it's, it's sort of been exploited in certain ways. I mean, all of the invisibilized fire we rely on to get us around, provide us with comfort, convenience if we talking about like plastics like the ability to go and buy berries in this plastic container you know got to bring your own container you know all of that is sort of derived from fire and so this is you know part of the reason i think the the book being so centrally focused on a on a fascination clearly that you have with fire is is quite resonant um and like you know that that fascination it takes different forms in the book where you know like you're also talking about this kind of there's also a fascination with kind of balance, like, and, and the ways in which we are accelerating past a place of balance. You know, you talk about the characteristics of the boreal forest as a biome, and there's this like sense of the sublime um, in relationship to that, like the, the scale of it and what it, what it accomplishes in terms of the life-giving power of it. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask kind of, um, I don't know if it's a personal question, but like where that comes from, like, is it, is that fascination a thing that you experienced personally? Was there a rhetorical element, like in the sense of trying to kind of um, encourage us to think about our separation from that sense of the sublime, life-giving qualities of the natural world? I don't know. I, I honestly, Scott, as a writer, I, I feel like my role is sort of, I'm like a crash test dummy for the human race in a way. You know, hmm. I'm, the, I'm, I'm, going through these things that all of us are going through. And I just imagine or put myself in situations sort of to see what happens and, and explore the feelings that I have about it. And I'm not that different from other people. So probably the feelings that I have in the forest or around fire are probably going to be pretty similar to, to what you might feel and or what readers and listeners might feel. And then that is strengthened by, you know, I have curiosity about it. And then I find some interesting people who have had some particularly, you know, intense or intimate experience, like, you know, people who have lived through or fought these, fought these new, what I call 21st century fires um, that are, you know, bigger, hotter, faster, more destructive. They have information for me and I'm kind of assuming, operating under the assumption that if it's of interest to me, really compelling to me, uh, scares me, fascinates me, it's probably going to resonate. Yeah. So, um, but um, 
earlier, uh, you, you brought up this, you know, this idea of, of mastering fire and, and, you know, what the petroleum industry did is they monetized it in a way that it really hadn't been before. I mean, people certainly bought coal before and there were fortunes made in coal. And before that, people would have bought firewood. But the way petroleum has facilitated commerce, really an oil-driven, which is to say a fire-driven economy, mm -hmm. is unprecedented. And so almost everything we buy now is mediated through fire. So the petroleum industry, which I think is more honestly called the fire industry, is now enormously invested in perpetuating a very high level of combustion. And what they've done a really good job of is dissociating the very real benefits of controlled, industrialized fire, petroleum-driven fire, with the very real and increasingly damaging costs of combustion on that scale. Mm -hmm. And what's happening now is it's becoming harder and harder to keep those two realities separate. Mm -hmm. And we're in this moment of collision right now where more and more people, in, like, for example, uh, State Farm Insurance, one of the biggest, oldest, uh, most dominant insurance companies in the United States, has just said four days ago, we are not insuring any new houses in California for fire. So think of the implications for that. Mm -hmm. California has more people in it than all of Canada. It's something like it's like the eighth biggest economy in the world by itself. And so to have one of the biggest, oldest insurance companies say, nope, not going to insure your house for fire. Think of what that means for where people live, what they build, if they build, how they build. Um, it's colossal. And that is a, a direct result of climate change, it's a, which is caused by our monetization of and basically industrialization of combustion. We're starting to feel the, the impacts of, uh, of our success, really. I mean, that's the irony of it. It's not like, oh my gosh, we're running out of oil. What are we going to do now? No, we're actually, we no. have so much of it. Massive amounts, yeah. And when you emit, uh, when you burn stuff on planet Earth, the emissions stay here. They don't go into space. They don't disappear just because you can't see them. They accrue. And we're feeling that now. So we were at 405, uh, 405 parts per million uh, not long ago. We're now at 425 parts per million. So we're now fully 50% above uh, CO2 levels in the, from the pre-industrial times, you know, based from 1750 to now. So we've increased by 50%. And think about increasing anything by 50%, whether it's, you know, your mm -hmm. body weight or your blood pressure or uh, your income or the rainfall in your um, uh, community or the number of houses that burn down in your community. Any one of those changes by 50% is going to be very noticeable and almost certainly disruptive. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think you're right to provide the kind of stark picture that you do. 
um, of a, a feedback loop, a fire season that never ends. Um, because, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm not going to ascribe an, a, a specific kind of um, objective to the book, but you do provide this like vast history of disinformation and delay and, and the moment that we're at where disaster is so overwhelming um, that it is certainly jarring, but it can also be mobilizing. I mean, we have clearly crossed uh, a, a real threshold. And so, you know, I think it matters that there are a lot of places in the book where you're working to provide radical solutions. You know, it's one of the most valuable parts of the book for me. You're, you're not focused, for example, on shaming human beings for igniting the fires, though that can be very tempting in a lot of these instances. And it often, I think, takes over the discourse to a certain extent. You know mm-hmm. that there are a million ways that these fires can ignite. I guess the Chisholm fire was a, a you know, a train, sparks from a train passing by. So focusing on the source of ignition is misleading, given the, you know, ridiculous amount of, of burning that takes place on a daily basis. Fire is, as you point out, a, a, a key part of, of the forest life cycle as well. Um, the problem is that it is reaching this point of unbridled intensity. And so I wondered if we could like unpack this idea of the wildland urban interface and sort of like, yeah, like that, that problem of development and your current sense of basically the best practices for like forest management. If, if what we're faced now at, at the moment of crossing, crossing these thresholds is the challenge of adaptation, you know, how do we confront that challenge? Like, have we put ourselves at, you know, greater risk basically by building communities on the edges of forests while also warming our planet in unmitigated ways? Yes, several times over. Um, mm. I mean, it almost feels like what we've done with our atmosphere by essentially supercharging it with CO2 and methane, we've basically skewed it in such a way that fire burns more easily now. You know, I, I said, you know, in the book at one point, you know, it, there is an argument to be made that this is the, there's never been a better time to be a human being when you think of the healthcare available to us, the, the resources, the relative stability in which we live. But, right. you know, that's debatable because there are plenty of people who are having a very difficult time right now. Uh, but one sure. thing that I think is really inarguable, there has never been a better time to be a fire. Never in human history has the world been so flammable. And so right. we have created, we've sort of stacked the deck with CO2 and methane uh, and, the, and the resulting heat and drought that flow out from that, uh, such that fire can now burn more easily, more intensely in more places than it ever has in the history of Homo sapiens. So there are fires in the high Arctic now. There are fires in the Amazon jungle. There are fires in the British Columbian rainforest. There are fires in the rainforests of Tasmania. Uh, there, ha- there was a wildfire on Greenland in 2017. Greenland is a polar ice cap mm-hmm. with a very thin uh, fringe of briefly seasonal uh, tundra and you know dwarf birch and things like that. Um, it caught fire. So this is all new. And this extends to the places we live. And so the WUI, W-U-I, the Wildland Urban Interface, is the place where the forest meets the built environment. And 
we've been through this massive cultural and developmental change over the past 50 years, really post-World War II, where people started moving and building in the suburbs. And a lot of the attraction of the suburbs was the fact that there were trees around and parkland. And, you know, people loved the idea of, you know, having some deer and maybe some wild turkeys and there's ducks in the pond and you're far from the city, which was often, you know, quite dirty and polluted. And so what we had in the 20th century was two things coincided. One, uh, a much more effective uh, means of fire suppression. So you had wildland firefighting crews who were better funded, better equipped, and better simply at their job. So a forest fire would start and they could suppress it instead of it just going wild for you know days or weeks or months as it would in the past. So you had a mm -hmm. much better fire suppression, which led to just a, a buildup of not just bigger trees, which don't cause fires, but lots of underbrush and scrub that might burn out in a more intermittent way uh, before fire suppression. And now those kind of cleansing, housekeeping um, forest floor fires were being um, were being suppressed. And so now you have this buildup of dead branches and old scrub brush. And, and so there's a lot of kindling now that's just sitting there. And the other, the third thing, third factor was as people who study rainfall and hydrology are coming to determine the 20th century was actually an unusually damp century. Oh, really? There was a lot more rainfall than, say, over the previous thousand years, and maybe not a lot more, but there was enough more. So you have this combination mm -hmm. of excellent fire suppression, damper soils, and more rainfall. And then you have these folks who are no longer farming, no longer living in the traditional, either urban or strictly agrarian community moving into the suburbs and saying, wow, I'd really like to live in the forest. And so now mm -hmm. you have 30% of American homes and 50% of Canadian homes are built technically in the WUI, in that wildland urban interface. And mm -hmm. we see the difference between the built environment and the forest, but fires don't. Mm -hmm. And a fire is perfectly happy to burn down an oak forest. And it's also really happy to burn down your garage. And if it can jump from the garage to your house and then to your neighbors, it'll do that. So um, that's what we're seeing. And that's what we saw. In, well, and you guys have just lived through it. And it's really still yeah. a shock to me to, to imagine people in Nova Scotia having to go through this. But believe me, when it happened in Fort Mc Murray, people were just as surprised. And sure. but that the heat of that fire on May 3rd, 2016, you know, it was pushing 500 degrees Celsius radiant heat ahead of it. And radiant heat is the heat generated by a hot object. And radiant heat moves at the speed of light. It's so it's just on you. As soon as the thing begins radiating, if you're near it, you will feel it. And this fire was so dynamic and so energetic that it was pushing 500 degrees Celsius ahead of it, which doesn't just heat things up, which is what fire wants. It wants uh, its fuels to be hot because when the fuels are hot, whether it's wood or a plastic chair or a can of gas, it will vaporize. And it's the vapors 
that the fire can eat. You know, just like a baby food, you know, if you gave a, a piece of bread to the baby, uh, she would choke on it. But if you softened it all up into pablum with some water or milk, she could, you know, suck on it and swallow it and, and it would feed her and nourish her. Well, fires need their food to be in a vapor form for them to be able to eat it. And so that's what the heat does is it releases the vapors. And so if you're, if you're able to generate 500 Celsius heat and with a, with a tailwind blasting that into a forest and then into a neighborhood, everything is going to be way past ignition temperature, especially if it's a modern house. And this is something that is, again, we have to go back and keep focusing on the fire industry. The fire industry and the petroleum industry are the same thing. And mm -hmm. so petroleum products are uh, just another way of kind of monetizing fire. And that's the business of petrochemical companies. And so when you look at the modern house, especially in Fort McMurray, it's got vinyl siding. It's got a tar shingle roof. It's got vinyl windows. It's got all these laminates and glues and other resins in right. the wood that is, isn't even wood. It might be plywood or chipboard or something like that. And then when you look at the carpeting, look at the curtains, look at most of the clothes people wear nowadays are made yeah. you know, from nylon or polyester. These are all petroleum products. They will all combust. They will mm -hmm. all volatize at a certain temperature. I mean, they'll melt on your body, which is really dangerous and unhealthy, but they will also start to off-gas flammable gases, and they will burst into flame if you get them hot enough. And so what happened in these houses is because petroleum products volatize more easily than, say, a cotton sofa with horse hair in it or cotton batting in it or solid oak you know, frame, if you have chipboard and polyurethane and um, all the synthetic fillings that now stuff our furniture and mattresses, and you get mm. those up to 500 Celsius, you basically have these petroleum gas chambers instead of a house. Every room is this bomb of roiling explosive vapor. Yeah, it's terrifying. Like when you're driving down the road and you see a house fire, you know, tons of smoke, and but you will see the house. And then you'll see mm. the part of the house that's on fire. And you'll see the frame of the house inside the fire, if it's a really bad fire, these houses burst into flame completely in their entirety mm. and then fell into the basement in five minutes. Yeah, it's stunning. And so these are you know, two-story, 2,000-square-foot, half-million-dollar houses in Fort McMurray burning down in, in minutes. And firefighters couldn't believe it. You know, and I couldn't believe it when they told me, and it was only when I understood what was happening at the level of combustion that it started to make any sense at all. And these are these are otherworldly conditions. And, you know, the temperatures in those neighborhoods as firefighters were in there trying to get people out because they couldn't fight the fire. It was too hot, too big. Exactly. They were just doing rescue work. The, the temperature among those houses was like Venus. Literally. You know, it was another planet that human beings cannot live on. 
And I mean, you you do you do such an incredible job, really, in the book of like putting us in those seemingly unimaginable conditions. Um, and to me, like that's what's again like beyond providing the, these sorts of ideas around solutions, which I hope we can have a little bit of time to talk about the kind of um, large scale, almost epistemological solutions to kind of shifting away from a colonial extractivist mindset and what you call wildfire capitalism. Yeah. Like you put us in the, in the position of people facing these perfect firestorms. And yeah, I mean, like when you make it clear that when a powerful uncontrollable fire emerges, there's nothing that can be done to fight it. Like the fight is already lost. And so you just have to, you just have to run. Um, and a lot of things have to happen for that to happen effectively. And I wonder about like the way that you're also kind of theorizing communications in the book, like people that don't see the threat need to know officials serving communities need to be proactive. And you do, you do devote a bit of time in the book to, that balance between inducing panic and communicating with the appropriate urgency, you know, like let's, let's sort of think about the city as this space where evacuations happen. I mean, over 600 municipalities in Canada have declared climate emergencies, but I don't feel as though the problem of fire is necessarily crossing the minds of people who are trying to govern these cities. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say to folks that are in positions of power when it comes to appropriate planning and messaging for such an unimaginable thing suddenly being on your doorstep. People have paid very high prices for the wisdom that they are eager to share. And so if you talk to the members of the volunteer fire department at Enslave Lake, Alberta, which burned uh, in 2011, mm-hmm. uh, they, they are believers. They believe that towns can burn down and they've worked really hard to find ways to fight fire and protect communities from these types of fires. And they wanted to share that information with people in Fort McMurray, which caught fire only five years later, you know, and, but Fort McMurray was such a big city. It it's, even though the forecast was the same, the weather was the same, the conditions were the same. It was just as hot, just as dry winds were predicted. There were five fires burning around Fort McMurray at the time. It was clear that this was an unusually, almost historically flammable May, just as the current May was uh, in Alberta. Um, Mm -hmm. That one was too. And in spite of all that, and they made preparations, it wasn't that they didn't ignore it, but they, they couldn't imagine in a meaningful way the possibility of the fire actually taking over their city. It was simply inconceivable. For sure. Well, they treated it pretty much as they had all the other wildfires that they'd encountered over the past 50 years and that they'd been successful in deflecting or subduing. And this fire was different. And it was the same kind of fire that burnt through Slave Lake five years earlier. It was the same kind of fire that really set the record for energetic fire uh, output in Chisholm, Alberta in 2001. That's a legendary fire, the most intense fire ever measured anywhere on earth. 
And yet, I don't think people know about it. Like, you, there's no Wikipedia entry on it. Right. And yet, you provide this stunning description of it. I, I didn't know. I know. It's shocking. But people in, but people in Alberta knew. So right. the head of the head of wildfire management for Fort McMurray for that for that wildfire district, he knew about that fire, mm-hmm. and he knew about Slave Lake. He knew what boreal fires could do in his province, and even then, he couldn't fully grasp that that fires with that energy could actually take over Fort McMurray. And you kind of wonder. So what does it take? What does it take? And this is where we really need to listen to each other. We really need to listen to meteorologists. We really need to listen to climate scientists. And part of why I write, wrote this book, Scott, honestly, is as a public service announcement. Yeah. That this is real. And these people, these poor people in Slave Lake, in Fort McMurray, in Lytton, BC, and now in communities in Nova Scotia, you have seen the future. You can, you've seen what it can do. And so many of us still can't quite believe it. You know, I live in Vancouver. All the houses around us are 100 years old. You know, they're, they're tinderboxes. They're all jammed mm-hmm. together, gutter to gutter. You know, if the fire got in here, you know, we'd never see the end of it. Uh, it would be a monster. And and yet we're pretty blithe here. You know, we've got a yeah. fire department and people are careful, but we're we're being careful like it's 1990, but it's not 1990 anymore. We really do live in a new climate and we have changed. We have changed the world sufficiently that fire can now do different things in it. And what's happening mm-hmm. is we've, we're getting these messages from the future that come in the form of you know, some random citizen in a random neighborhood outside of Halifax, but they've seen it now. And they're probably traumatized or furious or feel betrayed or feel confused. Uh, There's a whole process of integrating this new information. And, you know, what really impressed me about the Kootzes, Ryan and Jamie, who were father and son firefighters out of Slave Lake, and who play a significant role in, in, the, in my book, um, is they've really thought it through. They've really integrated the information. They've learned the lessons. They really want to help people. And so in a way, I'm trying to amplify their message. Mm-hmm. But I've seen the suffering that people experienced out in Alberta and Lytton and, uh, and that you're now you know coming face to face with in Nova Scotia. And Nobody, you know, should have to go through that. And, and there are ways to, to mitigate it. And, you know, I think in certain cases, prevent it, uh, certainly make it harder, harder for fire to intrude on our lives in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, uh, I absolutely, uh, you know, I really appreciate you putting the book together. It does function as this loud, enunciation of that question like what is it going to take the the kind of central you know fires that you focus on you do of course talk about the massive cataclysmic wildfires that um australia has seen but um you know the the chisholm fire the fort mcmurray fire they are both fires that happened in alberta which is not just known for these intense blazes but also for being the epicenter of the petroleum industry in canada so I, you know, I feel like we should 
not that we haven't already, but we should talk about oil or, you know, instead we could talk about like bitumen. You do spend um, a lot of time in the book explaining the unbelievably energy intensive process of extracting and refining this ancient tar that is the keystone of the Albertan economy. Um, But I'm kind of, you know, curious to pick your brain about the kind of enormous political power that it has. Um, You gesture to the complicity of the Albertan government with the industry um, in light of what you call the, quote, return to and hardening of the industry-friendly United Conservative Party. I mean, we've just seen Daniel Smith win uh, a provincial election in Alberta. Um, And so I wondered if you could speak to why it is that Bitumen still holds this stranglehold on the Albertan mindset, despite all these calls for a transition. Um, is it like, where does that loyalty come from? And and could you like potentially relate it to this idea that while fire is a force, so too is what you call kind of wildfire capitalism or or just fire capitalism? Alberta has provided a place and an economy and an industry that has benefited an enormous number of Canadians. And so, you know, especially people from the Maritimes who've had some really limited options uh, work-wise and um, have been able to go there to uh, Alberta and really prosper. And that has been powerful. It's been powerful for their families back, back home, and it's also been powerful for them. And especially if you if you are having a hard time making ends meet, you know, and you here's this opportunity to make a lot of money and pay off some debts and, you know, all that. But then you attach that to a political system. You attach it to a much larger global industry for which Alberta is really just one small cog. And then the machinations of these larger corporations that have enormous political influence uh, through not just through campaign um, funding, but also just through, you know, if you want us to do business here, you know, you got to play ball. Um, uh, we can make this work for everybody. Uh, so there's there are all these, you know, subtler uh, pressures and motivations to, to, to keep business as usual humming along. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the incredible kind of confronting inconvenience of climate change um, is really jarring. And I think how this industry and the way it manifests its energy politically has chosen to deal with it is by not dealing with it or by saying, yeah. uh, paying lip service to really false band-aid solutions like carbon capture. Sure. And we'll just suck all the uh, CO2 up and it'll be fine. And I don't think people understand the scale of emissions that uh, is occurring either in the oil sands, the tar sands, or planetarily. And the other thing is it really doesn't matter what Alberta does uh, in terms of you know, even if it's able to absorb its own emissions, global emissions are such that they there's no way to seal Alberta off from those impacts. And so, you know, what I was thinking to myself as well, you might be able to, quote unquote, take Alberta back at the polls, but you cannot take Alberta back from the climate, from the atmosphere 
or from the boreal forest. And just uh, not that long ago, I was talking to a guy from Red Deer, born and raised in the oil patch, you know, a real diehard petroleum working Albertan who's also works in, he's a professional firefighter. And he said, you know, we dig, dug, uh, dug some test pits in a muskeg bog in the boreal near us, and it was dry to a depth of two and a half meters. And right. we, you know, Canadians know muskeg, and muskeg is wet, and it's wet all the way down. And sometimes it's drier or soggier at different times of year, but the idea of it being dry two and a half meters down, all of that is now fuel. You got mm. two meters of solid fuel that is like a crude coal can burn all winter, can burn forever. And that's new. That's brand new. And that is something that the petroleum industry in Alberta and globally is going to have to own. And I was recently talking to a guy uh, who I interviewed for the book, and he said he and his wife are thinking about selling their house because she is so afraid it's going to burn down again. Right. So how do you have petroleum workers or anybody working in an industry in a place that they're they're so afraid to live in that they don't want to own anything? Right. Like the the chickens are sort of coming home to roost here in some very graphic ways. And why would you want to psychically harm your citizens that badly? Mm -hmm. You know. And and so then, what's what are the real motives of the industry? What I see, you know, is the tail wagging the dog, is us bending over more and more to accommodate this fire-driven money-making machine. And anyone who's involved in, in the modern world is engaged with uh, petroleum and with fossil fuel burning. But mm -hmm. just, there's, there's a very strong incentive now to, to examine critically and constructively this entanglement and we can and different nations and municipalities are demonstrating that you can decouple fossil fuels from a functioning economy and a functioning civilization it's possible to do it absolutely and now clearly necessary I mean, the collision that you described, the disorientation and dishabitation that you just you've, you've described in this conversation, um, that is the moment, right, where there is a, a the book ends with this concept of a, a reckoning. The the struggle that I think people at those uh, more local levels have, I think, is having a, a, a faith that at the highest level, there will be an openness to imagining degrowth or sacrifice when it is the case that we're so entangled with those like really powerful ideals, deeply capitalist ideals around growth. And, and you talked about how fire is about growing bigger and bigger, um, you know, that it's, it's difficult to imagine at the highest levels that being embraced. Um, and so, yeah, I think taking, taking it back to use your, your term, either at the polls or, um, through, you know, various forms of mobilization, you know, climate revolution in some sense, uh, the book ends with this idea of a kind of, you know, a, a, a green spirit or green energy, veriditas, I think is the term. Yeah. Um, you know, as that kind of utopian horizon. Um, and I think like 
that becoming more mainstream hopefully will have uh, a similarly fiery and passionate sort of effect, right? Where it does spread, it does become this sort of um, this storm that that replaces and displaces the the bu- business as usual scenario. At least that's my hope. I mean, the last question I wanted to ask is about some of the sorts of allegories that you kind of draw from in the book. Uh, you know, just they're kind of these open ended and wonderful metaphors. I think of of, of in some ways, you know, this this wave of uh, what I'm calling climate revolution taking on these monstrous forces. The two um, images that seem to recur in the book are, interestingly, Godzilla and War of the Worlds. Um, and I kind of like wondered what you were doing with those those things. Like at, at one moment, one moment, for example, you're talking about um, the the arrival of the fire um, being, you know similar to War of the Worlds, where people stop in their tracks, heads turn to the sky, beholding something whose size and import they could neither limb nor scale. You say it wasn't Martians or Godzilla, but it was a monster and they knew it. Um, You know, what are you doing in terms of these kind of allegorical touchstones in the book? And and is it a way of kind of opening up our imagination to the the scale of the fight we face? I think, I think, uh, thanks for asking, Scott. I think it helps someone who's never been through it Mm. to really imagine it. You know, we've seen the movies. Imagine being a person actually living in the real world and having this arrival, you know, happen to you. And so it's a way to, I'm trying to tap into uh, some, you know, familiar reference point for people and then say, actually, but this is, you know, this is actually really happening in a, in a city, you know, whose name, you know, and that you could go and look up and, but as far as um, there are these two uh, uh, pieces of this that came to mind in terms of grappling, you know, with this monstrous energy that's being released. And one is, um, you know, as far as making it a safe and uh, peaceful transition away from industrial scale burning, um, we do have to reckon with the fact that the companies who have the most to gain from continuing burning will basically cheat and lie in order to keep burning. So there is some real cynicism on the industrial side and on, you know, amongst the political parties that they're allied with to skew information in their favor and sow confusion, sow dissent, make people less effective and unified. Uh, and so we, we have to reckon with that. You know, there is documented, now extensively documented uh, information on the ways that petroleum companies have tried to subvert uh, a transition away from industrial burning. So, um, so that's one thing that we really need to face squarely and courageously and also intelligently. Um, and people are. So, that, so there's, you know, there's a lot of there a lot of traction has been gained uh, on that side. The other piece of this is, you know, you and I, Scott, and everyone listening to this was raised in a petroleum-powered civilization, in a fire-powered civilization. But, you know, I'm of a certain age and I, I knew people personally who were born before there were cars. And we it hasn't 
quote unquote, always been this way. It's always been this way as far as our lives go, but our lives aren't that long. Really, this, um, this uh, experiment that we're conducting in a fire-powered civilization is only about six or seven generations old. And that seems like a long time, but Homo sapiens, our species, our families have been around a lot longer than that. And most of our history has been spent intimately engaged with the land, growing and husbanding and caring for and nurturing, uh, either through agriculture or, you know, fishing, hunting, livestock rearing. We, re we, in our history, is a deep knowledge and affinity for the land and its inhabitants. Industrialized, burning, and a fire-powered society and civilization has led us away from that. And technology does not help. So the combination of uh, a, a computer-powered world and a fire-powered world both kind of conspire to separate us from the land. And the land is where our lives are. The land is, you know, what will save us. And the water, the air, uh, a healthy ecosystem. And so that's mm -hmm. in our past though. And it's also all around us to this day. I mean, Nova Scotians know as well or better than anybody. You know, there's a lot of forest out there. There's a, a lot of arable land out there. There are beautiful lakes. You have the ocean right there. So there's so much life all around us that is waiting patiently for us to return to it and focus on it again and um, give it pride of place as opposed to treating it as a surface that we work and burn over and just impose ourselves on. That is a, a really neat and, and I think motivating kind of articulation of some of the ideas that you're putting in the book, which is that, as you say in, in the text, like we're limited by the brevity of our lives and by what you call the kaleidoscopic swirl of technological advancement. And so it's hard to appreciate how far we've come in such a short time. Um, and yet, as you say, there is this otherness to the earth that, you know, in a separate part, you say humans and their settlements live and grow by different means and rhythms than forests and fires. Um, but they grow that way now, post great acceleration and the kind of advent of um, a fire economy of, of fossil fuels. So um, if the book gives people an enormous amount to think about, it's it's a big book. Um, it's certainly worth uh, spending time with. And I just want to, yeah, thank you for being so generous with your time here. Oh, Scott, I really appreciate your interest. And, and obviously you read it closely and, you know, that's, you know, a, a real honor for an author, you know, to have someone they don't know resonate to their work and, and be curious about it. And I, I really hope this conversation has been helpful and it's really been a pleasure speaking with you.